This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Heath Brown, and I'm really interested in how and why people get along and create great scholarship together. This is the co-authored podcast, where we look behind the curtain and learn about how scholars of politics collaborate one project at a time. And the only direction Brian gave me was, he said, whatever you do, back up all this data. So honestly, being scared out of my mind, I immediately buy a rack of CDs and I was hiding copies of the data in my pantry, under the sink, under my pillow. There were CDs of that data all over my apartment. Maybe that's just what it's all about. Saving the files in every imaginable place so the project will persist. Just do not lose the project. Or maybe it's a bit more complicated and interesting than that. Maybe it's about the people behind these big projects, the camaraderie, the trust, and the delegation to build and sustain a big idea for decades. The person who is saving all those files under his mattress is Sam Workman. Sam is an associate professor of political science at the University of Oklahoma. Here is Sam again talking about the first time he met Frank Baumgartner and Brian Jones at dinner at Miller's Restaurant during the annual meeting of the Midwest Political Science Association. The first thing that you notice, and anyone would notice when they when they sort of meet Brian and Frank, is they can be sort of intimidating in, in very, very different ways. They're like the odd couple. So Frank has a way of sort of looking at you that's very intent, <laughs> whereas Brian is, is, you know, Brian's an, I don't know if you've met Brian, Brian's an enormous man, and he's very loud. <laughs> So at dinner, the truth is, I, I want to say that I had like fish and chips, um, but I do not remember a whole lot about eating those fish and chips. And here's Michelle Wyman from Florida State University. When any of us right, involved in the Policy Agendas Project would visit uh, his ranch out in, uh, in Texas, the directive was not to bring wine, but to bring beer instead. And if you were going to bring wine, it was for your own consumption. But the beer, the beer was shared. The beer was was loved by all. Yeah, I mean, how many people that you deal with say, let's go grab a brew or whatever. And uh, certainly um, there's lots of wine drinkers. Frank goes both ways. I'm a beer drinker. That was Brian Jones, one half of the odd couple that Sam and Michelle describe. As Donnie and Marie Osmond sing it, Frank and Brian are a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. 
Here's Brian Jones and then Frank Baumgartner. One of us fire and one of us is ice, and there's no confusion about which one is which. And uh, I think that describes as well. Um, I'm certainly more fiery than he is, but we certainly shared an op- openness to new ideas and uh, a, a discontent with uh, establishment principles and ways of doing things. Uh, and a, a willingness to try to develop alternative ways of thinking about those things. So we shared that, uh, and that's that, that's awfully important. That's why we're still friends after all these years. Well, you know, Brian and I have a lot in common, uh, but we have a lot of differences in our style. I'm, you know, I grew up in the city. Uh, he grew up more country. He's from Alabama. I'm from Michigan. Um, it's we have our differences, but I would say that um, we have our similarities. And the key, some well, the key thing that I respect about Brian is uh, his ethics. I mean, he is just on target with regards to anything about moral clarity. This podcast series is about colleagues, collaboration, and co-authorship, about research teams that make intellectual contributions to the study of politics across decades. In this episode, we focus on Baumgartner and Jones the three-decade collaboration between professors Frank Baumgartner and Brian Jones. This research on American politics, agenda setting, and public policy change resulted in three books, all published by the University of Chicago Press in 1993, Agendas and Instability in American Politics, in 2005, The Politics of Attention, and in 2015, The Politics of Information, as well as presentations and countless articles and an international network of data collection across dozens of countries and hundreds of scholars. In this episode, we will hear from Frank and Brian, but also from some of their collaborators, including Sam Workman, Tracy Sulkin, Michelle Wyman, and also those outside of the collaboration, like Perilou Pierre, who have thought deeply about this work. The first thing to consider about this collaboration is where the fields of American politics and public policy were in the 1980s, as Baumgartner and Jones were just getting started. Recall leading scholars who promoted an incremental explanation of policy change, like Charles Lindblom and Aaron Woldofsky, were in the ascendancy, each serving as the president of the American Political Science Association in the 1980s. That's when Baumgartner and Jones were just getting started. Here's Sam Workman with his take. Well, one of the reasons I think that the moniker Baumgartner and Jones carries weight is because it, at its core, it's an optimistic theory of American politics. So you have to understand what they were doing in 93. They were coming along at a time when it, everything in American politics said one of two things. If they were on the policy side, what they said was, well, it's all incremental. We just nudge it a little bit at the edges, and that's the best we can do. On the institutional side, they would say, well, checks and balances and interest checks interests and all that sort of stuff, and so gridlock. Brian and Frank looked, you know, thinking about issues, which is the real contribution of the field of public policy, uh, thinking about issue dynamics. And what you immediately know, notice when you look at any one issue is there's, despite all of our talk about incrementalism and gridlock, there's a tremendous amount of policy change. And it's not occurring all the time. But it occurs across all issues some of the time. And so you can look out there at almost any time and find an issue where there's really dramatic change happening. And so in so many ways, I think that 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 sort of Baumgartner-Jones take on politics 
It's an optimistic take about the dynamism that actually exists in American politics, despite all of our cynicism and skepticism, both in the academy and in the public more largely. And it kind of offered scholars a way out of the trap, because once you get to a point where you've described a system that never does anything or never moves, where do you go from there? (laughs) Right? (laughs) I mean, if nothing ever changes and it's all gridlock, the science is kind of (laughs) ends. There's nothing more you can say about it. And Tracy Sulkin from the University of Illinois. You know, I think what the most influential part of that project, though, for me and my own work going forward has been just the idea that agendas matter. Um, And in my field, my sub-subfield, right, in in representation and individual legislative behavior, the the coin of the realm was preferences. The idea that roll call votes and roll call vote choices are really all we care about. And that if we want to know what legislators care about, if we want to know how they represent their constituents, then what we look for is policy congruence, right? We look to see if they vote the way their constituents would want them to vote. And I think what the Agendas Project opened up for me was this idea that agendas and what legislators do um, really gives us as much, if not more, insight into understanding how they conceive of their jobs, how they make policy, uh, and how they represent their constituents. Baumgartner and Jones solved an intellectual problem of sorts, one that was holding scholars back from understanding big issues like representation, and long periods of inaction followed by brief but dramatic periods of policy change. But to do so, they had to meet. And uh, I interviewed for a job at Texas A&M, and Brian Jones happened to be the department chair. And Brian's previous job, which he had left only a year or two before, was at Wayne State University in Detroit, where Charlie Elder, who was also one of the major figures in the field of agenda setting, uh, had taught for his entire career. So Brian was really very familiar with the agenda setting literature, and so was I. And I came out of comparative politics, and he came out of urban politics. And uh, we just had so much in common that um, we really started talking and having lunch and uh, collaborating came naturally out of those conversations. I remember uh, the search committee was impressed with Frank, and we offered him a position. And we got to talking over time because I had a long-term interest in the public policy process. I'd done most of my work in urban politics at the time. And I had known Charlie Elder, um, an agenda-setting scholar at Wayne State, and worked with him some. And Frank had worked with John Kingdon, who also knew uh, from my stay in Detroit at Wayne State, and Michigan was nearby. Um, And we started talking about mutual interest. And we found we had a lot. Well, I would say Brian comes up with the crazy ideas, and then I add the repetition and the redundancy and uh, repeating myself. And then he takes out the repetitions, and then I try to explain his ideas. And then he comes up with more new ideas, and then I try to explain them again. And uh, we, we write and rewrite and rewrite and change and exchange uh, so that it's uh, just a complete mishmash of his contributions and my contributions. And then we'll just talk. Uh, you know, for 11 years or 10 years, we were colleagues at the same department, so we would talk all the time in one of our offices, uh, or we used to have a lab space where the graduate students had computers, and uh, we would spend a lot of time together, and we really got to know each other, and we could complete each other's sentences. We uh, had the opportunity, because the way in which Texas a and had arranged its graduate program, 
it only had a master's program when, I, when we first went there and established a PhD program, but it had a very small master's program and um, uh, a huge undergraduate population to serve. So the teaching, there were no teaching assistants. The teaching assistants weren't used in the classes. So they were assigned to faculty for various duties, teaching, research, and so forth. We put together a research team out of a group of these people. By then, I was no longer chair. Uh, and uh, the department chair was convinced we were on to something interesting. And we put them to work on uh, finding all the case studies that we could find in the field uh, that had addressed the gender setting question from a, a qualitative or quantitative em empirical standpoint. There's not any quantitative we found out, uh, but there's a lot of good qualitative work. And we began to study those uh, more systematically, trying to get data and information on those and put together a collection of case studies that could serve the basis of our thinking about uh, the agenda setting process. So you need a big idea and you also need to get along. But for a big collaboration to work, it also has to persist, especially through adversity, the rejection that everyone faces. Here is Frank again. We had a tremendous problems getting our first articles published. And the first article that was published ended up in the Journal of Politics in uh, 1991. And it was, it's uh, based on a chapter of the book, uh, the one on nuclear power. And that article was rejected and rejected uh, several times, and grant proposals were rejected. And in Frank's case, he was an assistant professor. And when we started talking about this, I said, yeah, you probably shouldn't get involved in this because you're not tenured. And he said, I don't care. It's interesting. So uh, we found out it wasn't going to be easy because we did get rejections, and uh, the JOP piece didn't go in easily. But that's happened to so much of the work I've done, I can't tell you. And it shouldn't go in easy because uh, you're talking about new stuff. Well, we did have some uh, interesting rejections, uh, as everybody has. We've got our scars uh, from rejections. But the funniest one was when I was an assistant professor and we were just starting out on this collaboration. And Brian, of course, was the department chair. So it was a little bit of a status differential. And um, Brian got us invited to contribute a chapter to an edited book about urban politics and so we wrote a chapter called image and venue in urban politics and the editors of the collective volume eventually declined to publish our chapter saying that it just made no sense and they couldn't understand what it was about and uh you know it was a solicited chapter and then they rejected it and so uh brian was uh suggesting that maybe he was he was uh, ruining the career of one of his most promising young assistant professors by collaborating with me. But Frank and Brian weren't discouraged by the rejection. They continued. Uh, we didn't want to replicate the old literature. And when you don't replicate the existing literature and you do something new and different, you know, there's gatekeepers who don't necessarily want to accept those different ways because they think, well, maybe it could be shoehorned into another vocabulary and we had some real confrontations with some scholars about why we were not shoehorning our ideas into their vocabulary and we tried to develop a new vocabulary and you know thank goodness for us we were able to stick to our guns and eventually get positive reviews from other people who were more open to a, a different way of thinking about it. Not every confrontation or response from established scholars was negative. In this study of agendas and public policy, 
One of the other big names is John Kingdon. While many juxtapose the approach of Kingdon with Baumgartner and Jones, the actual history is a bit more complicated. People might be surprised that, uh, and actually I have on my website the, um, the proposal that became the book, uh, Agendas and Instability, and it, it's called The Politics of Disequilibrium in its initial draft, and it does not use the phrasing about punctuated equilibrium. And actually, John Kingdon was the reviewer for the University of Chicago Press who uh, gave us a very helpful and thankfully favorable review. And in that review, he said, you know, what you're really talking about is punctuated equilibrium, and you should simply integrate that language and vocabulary because it's the easiest way to explain what you're talking about. Because we had the, the language about negative feedback processes and positive feedback loops in the initial book manuscript, but we hadn't adopted the language of punctuated equilibrium. So I've always thought it was funny that people often have said to me how somehow they see a conflict between Kingdon's approach with the multiple streams and then the Baumgartner-Jones approach with punctuated equilibrium. And we say, well, you know, John Kingdon is the one who told us to adopt that language in the first place. And it is this intersection between the study of political and policy change that the biggest contributions of Baumgartner-Jones have been found. Here is Tracy Sulkin, another graduate student associated with this research agenda, now a dean and professor at the University of Illinois. I think it's clearly been transformational in the field of public policy. Uh, and I think that, you know, that that sort of work is the first kind of work that folks think of in that field. And I think especially if you're considering not just public policy, but public policy process, the idea that there's something macro level that can be understood apart from someone's interest in a particular policy area, uh, I think it would be difficult uh, to overestimate the, the effect that that's had. And all this paid off. The book soon won the Aaron Woldofsky Enduring Contribution Award from the American Political Science Association. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is the second part of the co-authored podcast series focused on Baumgartner and Jones. Earlier, we heard about how this all began back at Texas A&M University. That initial project centered around these case studies of dramatic policy change and resulted in an award-winning book published in 1993. Now we learn more, especially how the massive data collection really began. Baumgartner and Jones started with a meeting and a big new idea, and that led to a book. But if it stopped there, this would be a seminal book, not a major research collaboration. What mattered most was what came next. One of my early jobs in grad school was uh, an archivist dealing with big databases. I always felt that uh, we should do bigger in political science. We should do things of a larger scale than what's possible for one person working alone. And so we, uh, we developed a strategy of trying to do large amounts of uh, content analysis 
uh, to use resources that were available at the time, such as the Congressional Quarterly Almanac or the New York Times Index or the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature to systematically review over long periods of time small bits of information, but lots of bits of information. And uh, we had to develop the methodology as we went along. So we were uh, ourselves frustrated, or not frustrated, but we thought that the next step would be to see if our theories hold, if we could do some kind of comprehensive test across the entire political system. So that's how the Agendas Project was born. We thought that we had developed some techniques that allowed us to gather huge amounts of information uh, very efficiently and if we could perfect those techniques maybe we could try something really large which which um, was started out with our effort to classify every congressional hearing since World War II and uh, so we put in a proposal to the National Science Foundation uh, I think in 1993 the same year that the book came out and it was rejected on the grounds that it was impossible and so we demonstrated more, we did a lot of feasibility tests and we timed our students and how fast, you know, how long it takes to code, you know, a thousand hearings and put the grant proposal back in and we were successful. And, and so we got, uh, I think about a quarter million dollars from NSF in 1993 or 1994. And that, that really started us on the road to creating the databases that became the Agendas Project. And we just worked on collecting data, and we did some papers, but it wasn't until 2005 that uh, the Politics of Attention came out, which was the first you know, major contribution from the actual Agendas project, where we had a comprehensive set of databases. For Baumgartner and Jones to work, it needed to get to scale. And to get to scale, this had to be bigger than just Frank and Brian. Here's Frank Baumgartner again. And I arrived at A&M in 1987 when the first class of students uh, started their studies. And uh, there was an abundance of graduate assistants available to help the professors in their research. And most of the professors didn't seem interested in asking for graduate assistance. But I took one look at that and I said, oh my goodness, I could definitely take as many as are available. And uh, so... Brian and I started using graduate assistants to help us build these big databases, and that became the real foundation for the Agendas Project later. I met Brian at a time at which he and Frank had, had left being at the same institution to um, working on these collaborations from afar, right? which I, you know, I don't know much about, but I imagined was a transition for them. You know, I think one of the things that um, made it work is that my perception is they're both um, good at organization and delegation, right? And so there was a sense of building an infrastructure around the project that would allow folks to collect data from various sites. Um, you know, there was a lot of focus on um, the, the, my colleagues who did collect data on knowing the coding scheme, on working through sort of standard operating procedures on, on things. And then I think what that left them free to do was to also think about the ideas and how all this mapped onto that. And here's Michelle Wyman from Florida State University. All I really knew about it was that it was coding according to one consistent policy coding scheme, all of this output. And so my original tasks were, were focused on basic data collection for these various data sets and applying the policy agenda's coding scheme to these data sets. 
So much of this multiple decade project goes back to graduate students, the integrity of the data, and the beer. Recall, the earliest days of the project is still in the mid-1990s, when data capacity and storage were still a major thing to worry about. And this project that was growing and growing needed the people and means to stay on top of the ever-expanding size of the project. Here's Sam Workman again. I can tell you as a graduate student, our moniker for Brian, we always called him the Delegator-in-Chief. And Brian is amazing at identifying people who are capable and eager and getting out of their way. Uh, I learned early on that um, to run any organization and manage your, because uh, I was department chair at, at Texas A&M, and I found <clears throat> that if I didn't delegate to the staff, I wasn't going to get anything else done. And I'd spend my whole time micromanaging. Whatever you do, back up all this data. And we were bringing the data over after it was summarized by our research assistants and then entered it into a coding system that we were developing and um, put the numbers in spreadsheets. Uh, we didn't have spreadsheets back then. It, it was just on a computer. And we backed it up with a big tape drive, but it took several hours to do it. And one of the graduate students was responsible for doing it. Every Friday afternoon, he would get a six pack of beer, sit in the, in the research room, Mike Rose, uh, McLeod was his name, and uh, drank beer and listened to country music and, and backed up the tapes, took the tapes home so if the building burned down, we'd still have the data. And what resulted from getting to scale and growing the team and entrusting them with the authority to run major parts of the project was a complicated story, but that one that is more nuanced and maybe more significant. This culminated in 2005 with the publication of the second book, which eventually won the Lewis Brownlow Award for the best book in public administration from the National Academy of Public Administration, as well as the best book published in English on the topic of public policy award from the International Public Policy Association. Intellectually, there's not very much difference. I think that the politics of attention to me has always been our most intellectually ambitious and challenging book. It's a more difficult book to read, I think, for, for the audience, but it's, to me, um, it's the most innovative. In, in Agendas and Instability, we developed what amount to chronologically based case studies demonstrating that um, there's periods of stability and instability. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud of that book, and it's certainly it's the one that's been had the biggest impact in the literature. So that second book was really uh, a different animal, much more ambitious because it was based on such huge amounts of data. And we really worked on it for a long time. But when it came to publishing this book, the size and scale nearly doomed the project. Our initial book manuscript had something like 17 chapters. And Jim Stimson was a reviewer for the University of Chicago for that book. And he essentially wrote, I stopped reading after chapter 12 and the authors have written something that's just too long and they need to separate it out into two books. And so we did that and uh, the politics of attention became the book that we published. And then we had some leftover chapters that Brian and I both agreed would be my responsibility to take and try to craft into the next book. Impact within the study of American politics, the thousands of citations in academic articles and inclusion in hundreds of syllabi is one thing. But for a project to be really big, the impact has to stretch into new domains. Baumgartner and Jones has had a particular impact outside of the U.S. 
within studies of comparative public policy. Well, our project today is, uh, you know, it's an international collaboration in 25 or 30 countries, and there's hundreds of people involved in the, in the various projects. Um, so, and the barriers to entry are very low um, as long as people want to do the work. We expanded this thing to Europe, uh, and uh, thanks to mostly to uh, Christopher Green Peterson, who had taken a seminar with Frank on agenda setting over there and then came to the University of Washington. I remember he walked in, he was from Denmark, Aarhus University in Denmark, and he walked into my office when he was on sabbatical at the University of Washington and said he understood about, he'd been looking at this policy agendas project. He wondered what I thought if uh, he tried to establish one in Denmark, for Denmark. And I said, yeah, I'm, you can do that, but it won't work because this is set up on the, on the Ameri- I bought into the, all the old stuff about American exceptionalism. And uh, he said, well, will you help me if I try? I said, yeah, we'll give you whatever you help you need. And he goes back to Denmark and don't hear much from him, but uh, they're building a database. And once in a while, some, an email or letter or call will come and say, ask questions. But in the end, we only got two sets of questions. Uh, one is we don't get housing policy and you know how complex it is in the U.S. Uh, and uh, two, uh, why don't you have more about fishing? It was Denmark, for God's sake. So, It was Denmark at first, but also Spain, the Netherlands, and Belgium, and later South Korea, Brazil, and China. Big projects also must be sustained, even when the team moves on to new things. Here is Frank talking about how Brian makes sure the team persists. Kind of uh, passive-aggressive comments about how I shouldn't be writing this award-winning book on lobbying or I shouldn't have written this book that won the camera prize for best book in public policy on the death penalty and when am I going to get back to things that really matter like like our book together. Uh, so it's in, it's in good, uh, you know, I take it well and we've, we know each other well enough to understand what's going on. And persistence is also about not being too precious about your ideas. I can remember sitting on a on a panel. I didn't sit on the panel. I was a graduate student sitting in the front row looking at a panel where they're invited to talk about the future of punctuated equilibrium, <laughs> which, of course, is the main sort of, you know, uh, carrier uh, in the in that original book. And Brian Uh, All of these folks are offering them ideas on what to do, and um, Frank starts by saying, well, you know, honestly, I really don't want to read any more case studies of punctuations. (laughs) I get them so many times, and we should just be doing something else at this point. And then it comes to Brian, and I forget who it was. I asked Brian, the person said, what is the future of punctuated equilibrium? And Brian said, there is none. I hope people <laughs> build on it and move on to push it and do other things. <laughs> Once somebody asked me, at a, we had a roundtable on punctuated, punctuated equilibrium. And I was asked, well, what's the future of punctuated equilibrium? And I said, well, I hope there's not any, which shocked him because that was supposed to be our major idea. And I said, uh, what? And he, I said, well, I hope somebody develops a theory that will subsume that in it and explain it in a way that we couldn't. And that's exactly what the newest generation of scholars are trying to do, to build on, change, and improve these contributions. Here's Parallel PA, a PhD candidate at the University of Oklahoma, a student of Sam Workman's, who is the next generation of this project. 
It's weird. Um, up until about a year and a half ago, I really didn't see the connection between a lot of the work that I was doing and the work, well, because my work was still early, um, and the work that the Brian Jones camp or the Bumgarner camp were, were putting out. And then as I progress and start to talk to some of the some of the people on at UT or um, speaking with some of the grad students at uh, Michigan, I, uh, a friend of mine named Marty is uh, was is a student of of I'm sorry of Frank, and talking about the work that we were all doing, it all speaks to one another, right? It's all part of that second or third generation, <laughs> wow, third generation of uh, ideas that spawn from. Uh, agendas and instabilities and punctuated equilibrium and now uh, information processing theories. The first time that I was actually introduced with Bumgarner and Jones's work um, actually happened very early on in my graduate studies. Um, I was in a Congress course and um, I had an interest in the Congressional Black Caucus and how they operated. Um, and there wasn't a lot of literature that I was being exposed to in, in that particular course about the organization. So the very next semester, I was taking um, an agenda setting class from Sam Workman. And he is, of course, a student of uh, Brian Jones and Peter May. And the, the things that he introduced me to in that course, agendas and instability, the politics of attention, the politics of inf information, and decision make, Brian Jones' decision-making book, those filled in a lot of the gaps that I was left with after the Congress course that I took. The way that I draw on their literature is by taking these ideas of policy definitions and multidimensionality and things of that nature and try to weave them into traditional congressional literature. Um, we know that some of the congressional literature has a problem, not necessarily a problem dealing with multidimensionality, but they they understand that that is, could be a linchpin in a lot of the congressional theories. But being uh, a part of the Black community and understanding Black issues, we know that these problems aren't unidimensional. Um, they aren't something that you can... You, poverty isn't just fixed by fixing poverty. It's connected to education. It's connected to jobs. It's connected to all these different things. And you can use these multiple dimensions to build coalitions on. You can use these different dimensions to actually, um, you know, shift from one to another to kind of reduce some of the tension in the room if you're trying to promote a particular issue. And I feel like that's the gap that Bumgarner and Jones's work and the subsequent work that followed um, kind of helped fill in to where we can, we know that the bills are being sponsored. We know that they're voting in a way that's really cohesive. But we, we didn't really know how they see the world. And by building on these definitions of policy and these the, the subsequent solutions or the potential solutions, we have a better understanding of how Black lawmakers actually see the world. Scholarship of public policy and the actions of government in the U.S. and elsewhere has been forever shaped by these ideas of punctuated equilibrium, agenda setting, and policy images and information. The data from this project continues to this day to grow and spread, adding new countries each year. These were good ideas and the research design couldn't have happened a generation earlier. But what I learned from speaking with so many people about Baumgartner and Jones is just how important these people are. Each person I spoke with remarked on the generosity and openness of the project, qualities that help explain how this co-authorship remains a part of the conversation in political science 
and likely will in the future. Ultimately, as Sam Workman said, they backed up the data, and they were prepared for that fire that thankfully never happened. Thank you to everyone who participated in this episode, especially the producer, Sam Anderson, as well as the American Political Science Association and John Jay College. 